Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. The book is not out yet, right? It's coming out uh, September 26th. Okay, great. So... um why don't we just start off then? Do you want to um, tell the audience, please, about who you are and your new book? Sure. Um, hello, my name is Christina Ward. Um, I am an independent food historian, a writer, as well as a vice president of Feral House Publishing. Uh, that includes our imprint, Process, Process Media. Um, and so as a bit of a busman's holiday, Process published my upcoming book, Holy Food, How Cults, Communes, and Religious Movements Influence What We Eat. It's an American history because it is very focused on the United States. That is super interesting. So where do you what where do you start this on the timeline? Um, you know, I wrestled with that um, in in trying to assemble all of this research and information. And I came to the uh, conclusion I needed to start in the beginning. Uh, so very much trace uh, everything back to where the genesis of all a lot of the food rules, which are all um, a bit of Leviticus, a bit of the early uh, Bible slash Torah uh, book, as well as back to some of the writings um, by Hindu leaders and Hindu, um, and then writings through the Buddhists, because those those kind of traditions start um, where people start, one, thinking about what spirituality is in a sense of a godhead, um, as well as then how they start incorporating different rules about what to eat, when to eat, how to eat, where to eat, and who to eat with. So... Um... So did those form part of the code of modern food standards or are you just kind of going back to earlier examples? No, that actually is the the basis. Everything that people were doing in the United States in the 18th, 19th, 20th century are all rooted in those kind of call, you know, the three main traditions of you know Hinduism, Buddhism, and then I lump everything like people of the book. So for me, the Christianity, um, Islam and Judaism are, are really all of a piece and related to each other. So what were the dietary guidelines of, of those groups at the time? So interestingly enough, it, it's not changed too much. So when we get to Leviticus, um, which is Old Testament, traditionally Jewish food rules, the kashrut rules, um, those rules then uh, translate to um, 
to the Quran, um, what we call the halal rules, um, and the lesser so to Christianity, but they did incorporate many of those rules. So um, people may be really familiar with like, don't eat pork, um, you know, don't eat shrimp, you can't eat um, scavengers. So those are some of the basics. Uh, you can't mix milk with uh meat, things like that. So that comes out of the Jewish tradition that then, you know, Islam and then Christianity. Um, a lot of then the Buddhist and Hindu tradition comes out of the almost what they call the prehistoric Dravidian times, um, which we see with Jains. The, um, a lot of the um, subcontinent of the global south Indian traditions, um, they get called Hindu, but that's British yeah. slang. That's yeah, yeah, not... Yeah. Yeah, that's not what they would refer to their own systems of belief as. But a it, lot it of, really shocked me when I found out that there are more religions in India than the rest of the world put together. It, so, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of um, the rules that we think about as is Hindu are really uh, stemming from Jain, from the Jain tradition. Um, that's and, interesting. So uh, my understanding is because I went to Northwest India and saw where it had started. And so my, my impression was that um, the Jains kind of happened in the mid second millennium. And they were the ones that kind of went hard into vegetarianism and, and, and a lot of what we now think is kind of like, I guess, yeah, like Indian health food. That was, yeah. that was them. It was them. And it's funny, of course, uh, funny in the sense of how disconnected Americans especially are from any sense of, I'm sure I'm being pedantic about food history because I think it's really interesting, but also just our own history as a people, as just as a human people, as just even tribalism, because some of the similar eating patterns of what Jane's believed translates, if you go on to uh, the other side of kind of the, the Hindu ranges of mountains, you'll see very similar beliefs in uh, what's called the Persian highlands. And so uh, the ancestral home of Aryans who then invaded Northern India, Northwest India. And so there is still academic debate about who did it first, who yeah, stopped gonna, eating meat first. Well, I was going to ask, I mean, I know that there's kind of the Indo-European hypothesis that that states that, but I actually do not know the current scholarship on that in terms of if they, because I, I know that that was a very popular theory for a while, then they threw it out, then they brought it back in. Uh, and there is a specific Indo-European genetic group, as we now know from 23andMe, but uh, is I don't know where the status of that, do people still fully, are they still fully on board with that, with that idea? There's mixed academic response. Yeah. There's people that uh, accept it, it's... there's people reject it. So when, when something is that still in that kind of early controversial stage, I'm willing to say, here's what some of the folks are saying, um, but it's not concrete. Okay. Um, it's still a lot of speculation. But to draw the dotted line, w there's a definitely a direct relationship between um, a lot of what's called Mazdaism, which is the modern incarnation, and Mazdak, the prophet from the central Persian highlands, a lot of his beliefs, um, and as well as then Zoroastrianism, you know, Zarathustra, are related to Jain beliefs. There's a lot of overlap that would suggest that there's influence back and forth there. Hmm. So how did these things, so I have two questions on this before we, we move on. One is, how did these Eastern ideas end up in America. I mean, I've never heard that there's a through line there. I would have I would assume, okay, like Christian, Judeo-Christian stuff from Europe, but you now you're saying that there's things from Buddhism and, and, and Hinduism as a broad category as well. Mm -hmm. um, 
it happens a lot sooner than you th- than people most people think. We kind of have this picture of um, you know the orange clad Harry Krishna, you know, in late sixties, seventies, but um, the there was a proselytization movement um, from the West Coast, from Japan. So from the Buddhist tradition starting in the late 1800s, because if we think about and that was not considered um, like to recruit white Americans, these new Americans to become Buddhists, but more a service to the community with the very large influx of Japanese um, immigrants coming to California, as well as Chinese immigrants. So not only is it Buddhist, it's different schools of Buddhism that are establishing in themselves in California. And then when by the turn of the 20th century, early 1900s to the 1920s, you see white people, you see white Westerners becoming a little bit more interested in the the Buddhist traditions based on uh, the establishment of Buddhist temples in California. Um, on the the other side, on the East Coast, is also the same time period, very late 1800s, is when different missionaries from different Hindu traditions come through. And this is where lineages can get really um, complicated because in the Guru tradition, which is what we, you know, for shorthand, we'll call it Hindu, um, there is this idea of lineage where the genealogy of your teacher is really yeah. critically important. Yep. Um, and so there were different teachers sending um, young teacher, younger teachers, acolytes over to the United States um, to start doing this type of education and uh, serving people. And 1920s, too, is uh, when um, Islam, Islam and some of the the organized Muslim communities in um, what we call the Middle East it started actually organizing and sending over uh, missionaries as well. So it and, happens a lot sooner than we think it does. And where was that on the East Coast or the West Coast with Islam? Because I, I know the Hindu history and Yogananda and Vivekananda and all of that. Uh, I did not know about the Japanese Buddhist thing. Uh, and I didn't know about uh, Islam in the 20s. So maybe just briefly what what happened there. Um, interestingly, I think is they uh, went so of the major branches of Islam, we're most familiar with like Sunni uh, and Shia, but there's another third branch that is significantly large, but considered heretical to the two other branches, and that's Ahmadiyya. And they're a little more open uh, to thinking. And the Ahmadiyya branch of Islam went exactly in the 1920s where the where the workers were. And so you can see where this is going, Detroit and hmm. Chicago, because those were oh, the largest wow. areas of Arab kind of, of immigration in the United States to work in the different factories there. Wow, I had no idea. And, and where did that, how did that move on? Where did that go from the 20s onward? Well, the fascinating thing it, to me is because the Ahmadiyya is a much more open form of Islam. They're much more accepting and it's a less rigorous practice, personally rigorous from a belief system, but less antagonistic to you know other beliefs, and so it was able to get uh, be adopted a little more easily than some of the more um, you know the, the groups that have a high control or barrier to entry. Um, and so the, the through line is if we think about the nation of Islam, and if we think about um, what's called Moorish, the uh, the Moors, that is all a direct relation to those early Ahmadiyya missionaries in Chicago and Detroit. Hmm. Super interesting. Um, so then just the, the one question I want to ask about kind of going back to the past is uh, b- before getting to the 20th century, unless there's other stuff to cover in the, in the 19th century, is why, why 
are, were some of these strictures in place? And the question to ask more clearly is, this is something that people talk about a lot. You know, like you look at things like, for instance, the restrictions on pork. Let's just take that as you know, representative of this topic and people, people talk about this. They'll look back and say like, well, there were, there were strictures on pork because of trichinosis, whatever that was, there was a parasite in pork. And then other people will say, well, no, actually there, it was specifically for religious reasons. And so I think a question people now will have looking back is, you know, were there pragmatic reasons for these food uh, restrictions or, or guidelines, or, uh, were they simply, you know, it was like a religious, cause I know a, a lot of times religions and cults will, uh, like a classic thing is assigning their followers a low protein diet so that they are more pliable and easy to control. And that's kind of one of my suspicions about some of the Hindu, uh, uh, hard, uh, vegetarian, vegan stuff, so, which I'm sure will upset people that I said that, but so well. <laughs> well, and that's, you know, we're trying to deal with like a, a history, the reality, not people's, yeah. you know, fantasies about what they, you know, you can still have your belief, but, you know, separate a little bit from how you got there. And so how you got there with the cash route, especially, which is the prohibition against eating pork and shellfish and shrimp and scavengers. Um, if you think about that from an unscientific point of view, following those food rules would lead to a pretty good food safety measure. So we know that pigs are not filthy animals, but perceptually they are. If you don't know how a pig lives, if you don't know the science, um, it may seem like a filthy animal because of you know they cover themselves in dirt and mud as a cooling system. If you don't know that, why they're doing it. It's just a filthy animal. Um, and so by eliminating those types of foods, the ones that, as you suggested, could make you very sick, um, you know, you help your tribe survive. And so a lot of those measures can be um, interpreted and do uh, get interpreted as like very primitive, very early food safety rules. Um, but as you suggest, there's also just the control aspect uh, about and then um, identification. How do you identify a member of your tribe? Well, you know, what he eats and what he doesn't okay. eat is a really great way to both unify your group because you're all engaging in a very similar behavior. Um, and also, you know, again, that identification. We can all club together because we know that we're all, always going to get ground beef on our pizza, not Italian sausage, which is pork. That, that, I haven't considered that before. That, that There's the kind of group identification aspect. That is super interesting. Yeah. Personally, I don't eat pork, but that's just because I raise pigs in my backyard to dispose of corpses. So the whole thing is kind of like thrown off for me. It's just got a weird vibe to it. That's so just me, though. I grew up on a, um, with a summers on my farm uh, with my grandparents and my father tried to keep pigs and got rid of them after a few years because he was convinced they were going to kill him, that they were so <laughs> smart. They were going to gang up and, and, and get him. Oh, no. <laughs> so. That's scary. Yeah, I know that there's a lot of research now that pigs are uh, practically as intelligent as humans, and they're also the yeah. closest meat to humans. So I've heard the thing, you shouldn't eat them because it's so close that it teaches your body to break uh, itself down. This may be an urban legend, but I have heard that. I have not heard that. And it's a fun uh, thing to kind of think about to take to its logical conclusion is that, you know, when is, and we use, if we think about um, heart cardiac surgery, they use a lot of pig valves for heart replacing heart valves. So I suppose if you have a replacement heart valve, you should never eat pork because then you're a near cannibal. 
Yeah. One thing that's going to happen in the next few years is going to be really interesting is they're using AI to decipher uh, animal speech. So, and they've already made progress with dolphins. And so, which is a very interesting use for, for machine learning. So, um, we're probably going to get to a point where we can actually cross communicate with animals. And that's going to be interesting because we'll see what they have to say about things. I think it's interesting as well. And as we go down this tangent, I'm going to add one more element um, as we get with global warming. And if you're, I don't know if you're paying attention at all to the growth of parasites. I don't, I don't pay attention. I'm just, I don't, I'm not an attention paying person. I'm totally <laughs> checked out of reality. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it with global I'm too busy warming. With my, I'm too busy with my pig farm. <laughs> I, I suppose there are lots of feeding, um, mm -hmm. is the rise of new pathogens and old pathogens resurrected. I'm fascinated mm -hmm. just because I have it myself is tick-borne diseases are spreading. And one of the byproduct, the after effects of many of the tick diseases, it's alpha-gal, which is essentially a meat protein allergy. I have that. Um, and so if you have this, you can't eat meat. And so it, it's a fun thing to think about is the progress that humans are making in machine learning to communicate with animals, conversely, um, with the intelligence of mass pathogen um, growth. And, you know, you could easily make an argument that not only is the world trying to, you know, the planet trying to take out humans, it's trying to stop us from eating meat by giving us meat allergies. Interesting. Well, I mean, there is the kind of whole... Um you know, there was the, all the kerfluffle around the wet markets in China mm -hmm. where all these, all these animals were, you know, kept in tight corners and things like that. So yeah, yeah. That, that certainly is not a, a, a heartwarming thing. Right. Zoonotic, zoonotic pathogens are always a real threat to human beings. We're not, we're not a very resilient as, I mean, just the carcasses, we're, we're pretty susceptible <laughs> to diseases and pathogens and, and all bunch of nasty stuff. So it, it's always just a race of like, which, which species will dominate the home? Pigs. Definitely. Pigs. Like, Interesting. I'll, I'll go with, I'll go with pigs. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So, so Okay, so then I guess we're if we're coming back up to the 20th century. So how did? Um, well, let me ask you this: what it, what it, what is the central thesis of your book? It's that cults have shaped and religious groups have shaped uh, eating patterns in America, or Absolutely. is it more nuanced than that? Yeah, um, that's at the highest level. That and secondarily, that we're unaware of the outsized influence, and then secondary to that is how connected all of these small groups are. And if we look just as a straight statistical, um, the Seventh-day Adventists, for example, um, not a, a huge portion of the population, yet a very outsized um, presence in the food world. They um, are early advocates uh, from the late 1800s of vegetarianism um, and also of the great American capitalism and start a number of food businesses. So if you're eating little Debbie snack cakes, um, Seventh-day Adventists, Kellogg's, oh, really? Kellogg's, of course, famously from the sanitarium, um, that is Seventh-day Adventist, Morningstar Farms, all the fake meat, the incognito and Morningstar Farms, that is all um, born out of the Seventh-day Adventist. The that's, that's super weird because every time I every, every time I've seen Morningstar, I always think of Lucifer because uh -huh. it just it's just like what like and if it was done by by Christians, you know, clearly they must have seen the resonance. 
I, I laugh at the same thing, but that's also the kind of the really interesting point of this is so many of these groups, especially the Christian influenced ones are just mining like the, what they, the accepted books of the Bible. Most of them are working off of like the King James ish version, especially the Protestant influenced sects and groups. Um, and they'll just pull out a random to me, uh, a random line, a quote, um, a saying, something attributed to to God or to Jesus and make that the rule. And it, mm-hmm. it becomes really fascinating of just how things are interpreted. And then that interpretation, you know, grows and, and takes on a life of its own. Well, what's an example of that happening? Um, one of the main ones is what they call the Edenic Covenant, and it's like God's promise to mankind if in the Garden of Eden um, is that you ha- man has dominion over all the planet of, you know, everything, living plants and animals over the earth. Now, a lot of people have interpreted that as um, we, we can eat everything. We eat whatever we want. Um, if it's people, be? eat people, whatever. Um, and conversely, a lot of groups have interpreted that in a 100 degree opposite, which is, is that, oh, no, we're the caretakers of the earth. We can't eat those animals. We can't eat it. And so, again, something as very simple as that one line becomes, again, the genesis of, of new belief systems, as well as then even what they in what they call acts. Um, there's a, a saying attributed to Jesus Christ that, you know, the community of if believers, if you're truly um, one of the believers and the select believers, then you need to live in a community. Ah, and so that is the line that gets everyone to communes and huh. especially religious communes and the separatists, the idea that they need to live only amongst themselves. Yeah, it's always a good recipe for um, living a healthy adult life to only surround yourself with people that agree with you. That's yes. always I recommend this for everyone. <laughs> and, and the other key to success is make sure you have a committee or at least one or two men um, deciding who gets to have sex with who. Because oh, yeah, that no, always that, works. That's what they call it. That's a great life hack right there. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that always works out. Um, that's really uh, yeah, it's interesting that one line in Genesis about having dominion over the birds and the of the field and all of that. Um, that for me is kind of like the bit, the little bit of bad code that you can trace so, so much back to, like you know, the environmental collapse, the fact that the British Empire, the American Empire, the the control and subjugation of nature, rather than I know a lot of people. Um, and this is not a slight at all Christians, because a lot of Christians interpret this as dominionist theology. It's like, no, we're supposed to be stewards, not, you know, con- destroy and consume it. Um, but it's amazing how much goes back to that one split on how people interpret that mm-hmm. that first part of Genesis, which is a fairy tale. So it's like we shouldn't even be interpreting it anyways, in my opinion, because it's you know, a fairy tale that people made up a thousand years ago. There's nothing to interpret. But so here um, we are. Yeah, I'm atheist and that I, I worked really hard to to take a non-judgmental tone in, in looking at, at all of these groups. Um, at the same time, sure, I have opinions about it. Um, and one of the things that, as you point out, that became really apparent is just the willingness of people to look for um, a way out, an explanation, and that idea of... they. 
people want to do what they want to do and they often ascribe their internal ego driven motivations to a holy person as like mm-hmm. kind of a, a panacea to get away with it. Yeah. Like you're talking about the environment is so somebody can suck out all the carbon based oil and energy because God said, you know, we rule the planet. I mean, it's idiotic. Right. It, it is. It, yeah. I woke up this morning reading, uh, uh, immediately started reading letters to a young contrarian by Christopher Hitchens. So my mind is in that zone right now. It's like, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> I'm a Hitchens fan. I'm, I'm with you. Oh, there. he was great. He was great. I mean, I what, a, what a, what a wit and what a writer and what a, what a speaker and, uh, you know, uh, firebrand also. Yeah. yeah he's he, always he, refreshing for me. Yeah. He and Gore Vidal. That's, oh, you know, I, love, they, I love, I love Gore Vidal. Yeah. The dream yeah, Gore, dinner party. That's. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Have you ever watched this tangent, but have you ever seen, um, one of the things I do just to, chill out if I'm too stressed out is, uh, there are tons of, um, on YouTube, there's tons of episodes of the old Dick Cavett show. So you can see like Gore Vidal arguing, like, like, uh, baiting Norman uh-huh. Mailer into freaking out and things like my, if, if, if you watch anything, I just recommend look, look up Gore Vidal versus Norman Mailer with Dick Cavett moderating is the funniest thing you'll ever see. Like he, he and this other woman just like wind up Norman Mailer into like, just blind like rage and like you can see like the microphone like come in from out of frame because it's in the 70s and highly recommended anyways yeah those um, are fantastic interviews everybody should you'll do yourself a favor by watching oh, you've, those. You've, seen, you've seen them i've seen them yeah oh, they're okay. fantastic. aren't those great i mean yeah they're fantastic yeah. absolutely okay so um yeah whenever i get too far down the rabbit hole of looking into religious stuff. I'm like, okay, we got to take a break here and go back to get, I need a hitch slap. Um, cause it is, it is scary. Cause the whole point, the whole thing about religions is that they're internally consistent narratives that promise to have the answers to all human problems if you just follow them. And that's a very tricky reality tunnel, uh, sometimes for people to get out of once they're in. It is because it's, I look at it, it's a, it's a logic exercise. So if you're committing to the system of belief and you follow it to the logical endpoint, and I'm saying it's, it's a faulty logic, but if you follow that internal logic of these, of many of these groups and from Catholicism to, you know, Adi Dom, um, you're going to end up with a bad outcome because the logic is so flawed. And this is, that's where you hit a crisis point for most of these groups is they reach like the zenith. They reach that endpoint of their internal logic of their systems of belief. And then they're stuck. They're stuck because yeah. either the world needs to end or they need to, they need to be the rulers of the entire world or, you know, something needed to happen and it doesn't happen. And so that's when these groups implode and implosion can be horrific. Like we talk about, you see mass suicides like Heaven's Gate um, or then you see sex break up. Um, and then, you know, for, we're, I'm saying SDA, Seventh-day Adventist, but if we look at really the history of Adventism, that is a multi-pronged group. David Koresh was considered himself the inheritor of William Miller and the true, you know, holder of the beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventists. I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I grew up like um, Heaven's Gate happened 15 minutes from me when I was a teenager oh. in San Diego. And I now live near Waco where... Uh... <laughs> 
David Koresh happened, which is it's always intense because Waco's on the freeway uh, north from Austin and you drive by the Waco Cemetery and it's just like, yeah, there's probably a lot of Branch Davidians buried here. Um, very yeah. just that, that was a disturbing incident, not necessarily for them even, but for how the U.S. government handled it. But that's another totally different topic it, for a different podcast. It is podcast. a different topic, but, you know, it relates back and that's a part of the inherent uh, conflict that makes this very American history. And the reason why um, here in the United States, we're home. We have more uh, new religious movements, we'll be kind and call it that, is because of our First Amendment. That uh, Establishment Clause in the First Amendment is led to a lot of freewheeling uh, spirituality and cloaked versions of uh, spirituality, businesses disguised as churches, churches yeah. disguised as businesses. And it's only here in the United States does this happen. Sure, you got Raelians in France, but you know, it's... <laughs> I forgot it's, about them. I forgot about them. Here. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's only here that we could cook all this stuff up. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Well, and also, that, I mean... Yeah, and that's the tension because then the government is still like, wait a second, wait a second, you know, you're, you guys have all these rights, but again, when your rights start bothering us, then we may have to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, well, the thing the reality of, of religion in America is that it's financially incentivized because you don't have to pay taxes if you're a religious organiz organization. So there, there you have it, you know, I mean, it's, it's, everything's money in the end sometimes. Yeah. I do go into that in the book a little bit because I felt I really needed to set that scene to under, so people understand you don't get to David Koresh unless you get to, you know, the Finneyites of the 1700s, the the end of the world Millerites of the 1840s, um, to the change of the tax codes in the 1890s the, through to the 1904. All of those things um, are layered on top of each other to like just really catch fire in the 20th century uh, for these all these new religious movements to be able to really grow. Yeah, I feel like the ultimate like the ultimate business plan in America is to start a religion and then use the religion to buy real estate uh, so that you're not paying tax on real, which is what Scientology does. And yeah. it's like people make so such ungodly amounts of money. I think the biggest landowners in the world and certainly in, in America are the Catholic and, and Mormon churches. So I got to the point with religion where I was like, you know, as as you probably know, and as my listeners know, like I'm interested in spirituality and things like that. I'm primarily interested in the techniques and I want to put them on scientific footing to see what's actually going on there. Cause I think that there's really uh, useful brain change techniques that have been buried in these things like yoga and meditation and things like that. But, um, I got to the point a couple of years ago, particularly living in LA, I live right next to the big Scientology building in Hollywood, or I just had this moment where I was like, you know what? Religion is a real estate scam. It really is. It's like Scientology, they don't even have that many followers, but they own property all over Los Angeles that they don't pay any tax on. And I'm like, it just be, suddenly became so clear. It's like religion, at least in America, religions, religion is a, a real estate scheme. It's a tax scheme. Yeah, you know, absolutely. The belief doesn't really matter. So that was a kind of a sobering moment for me, but it's good to have sobering moments because then you see through delusions, I think. I, I think and that's, it's important to be clear eyed about this. And again, if somebody wants to believe, go ahead. You get to believe. But, you know, have a little 
you know, bicameral separation that you can hold science and facts in the same place as your uh, faith in something. But it also goes to what you were saying about like the scientifically proved potentiality of some of the foods. And that is another influence of how these things became religious. If I'll go back to the SEAs and Little Debbie snack cakes, because everybody remembers those. I'm not sure. I always thought she was up to something because the Little Debbie trucks would pull up to my high school. I'm like, what the? It's so it's so weird. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's everybody's really mass consumer. It's your first introduction to carob because that ain't chocolate. That is not chocolate. That's carob. Say um, more about that. Just so carob is um, a, is a plant based substance. It's a food thing that it could be made. It kind of tastes a little bit like chocolate, and so it's mixed in and made and so coated. And but the other name for carob is Saint John's bread. And St. John's bread is called in the Bible when Jesus famously fasts for 40 days. Again, doesn't eat to cause hallucinations because that is scientifically proven to generate visions. Um, then when he comes out of the fast, God gives him, you know, the manna from heaven. And it's St. John's bread. It's a plant. It's huh. a plant. And so it. Is, so is that the same plant that chocolate comes from or is it related or is it totally different plant? It's a different plant altogether. I, th- I, I didn't I, know that. I thought it was the same plant. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a different plant. They may be genetically related and I should know that, but I don't. I can f- I'll find out and email you. I like the I like facts. And I, I thought they were the like same plant for some reason. Anything if I don't know. No, it's a different plant altogether. Hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. And so that becomes there's a lot of then religious connotation Im- imbued in St. John's bread in Carob. And now the Seventh-day Adventists use it as a, you know, essentially a chocolate substitute and everybody eats Carob. And and we've lost that connection to where the religious um, was inspired. And then going back to even we talk about Zoroaster, um, the sacred Hayoma, um, there's scientists and scholars that have kind of back researched what the Hayoma was, the the beverage, the sacred beverage to drink to cause hallucinations. Well, it's a combination of ephedra, the plant, which grows naturally in the, the Persian highlands. And uh, science is pretty sure a little bit of Amanita mushrooms. So... Huh. Well, we should, uh, I should make up my own energy drink version of that. I always thought it was for loco, but I guess, <laughs> I guess I was wrong. So, you know, I think it's really interesting then. So not only do we have, you know, so early food safety, and then hallucinogens. We are always, as humans, we're very attracted to mind-altering substances, and we tend to sacralize them. Yeah, very interesting. So then, hmm, so bringing it up to the the 20th, I mean, I have a couple specific groups that I want to ask about, but I don't want to kind of take away from the flow of the narrative of the book. So um, kind of when we enter the 20th century, what groups do you you start looking at? Um, I tried to pick examples of that were like the best examples of both the belief type and a group that had a food culture, because not every group did have a food culture, um, and, but a lot of them did. And so I follow, especially to me, that was really fascinating um, of the early uh, Yogananda you had mentioned and the different schools of Hinduism, because it, it really goes into the Sant Mat tradition. And in Hindu belief, there is a revered guru, has revelations, and then it's accepted as, you know, this is a revelation. So what we think of is like Sikh, Sikh uh, belief, it gets pronounced different ways. Um, 
is actually not a really a separate religion, but it's following Guru Nanak. And it's, so it's that kind of guru driven. That becomes really important when it comes to the U.S. because it has those lineages of different types of belief, as well as that tradition of a leader, of a spiritual leader who is giving out these dictates and people follow them. When you're you know, in India in the 1800s, those are usually limited to monasteries and not, you know, doesn't don't apply to everybody else. Comes to the United States, they sever it, uh, much of it from this, this, the actual rigorous spiritual practice. Uh, so it's, it's just yoga or it's just meditation. It's just this. It's easy. It's accessible. Yeah. It gets watered down. And that's, again, the American way. Um, and so that brings, you know, that's our 20th century. That's where this launches. So you don't, you don't get Jim Baker of the Source family uh, until you get Yogi Bajan, who, who was, came to L.A. in the early um, 60s. And you didn't get Yogi Bajan unless you got, you know, um, Yogananda, who came yeah. to L.A. in the 20s. And so there's a lineage between all of these guys. And it's those Hindu gurus that really super influence what we think of as modern cults. Yeah, I agree with that. Although I will say that um, I, in terms of just as a minor point, um, nitpicky point, uh, that Yogi Bhajan and Source Family were not in lineage from Yogananda. I can see metaphorically. No, he wasn't. No, yeah, no, yes, metaphorically, like yes. Yeah. No, no, and it goes. I go into it in the book a lot because there the lineages are super critically important. With Yogananda, his his importance um, is that he. He brought an almost ecumenical um, viewpoint with the permission of his branch of um, Hinduism uh, to the United States. And again, and but it goes haywire a little bit after him. Um, and yeah. so, again, to be clear, yes, you are absolutely correct. Yogananda was not part of that guru tradition that led to many of the um, modern gurus. Yeah, Yogananda is interesting because at least in my knowledge, I spent a lot of time around Yogananda people a lot. Uh, I used to live at Self-Realization Fellowship next to Scientology. Um, he was pretty clean. I mean, I, I don't I think there there have been some like rumored scandals and things like that. But if you put him next to like any of these other guys like Adida or Source Family or whatever, it's like th this guy was pretty squeaky clean. I mean, he was pretty like he presented yoga in a church way. Uh, it was like not like a drug and sex group. It was super conservative and straight laced. So, mm -hmm. uh, but it certainly was not that way afterwards. And I think in this from the sixties onward, you know, things got a little hairy. It did. It's that's when it started going. It's it, that it, that watered down this the next generation. It's when it again severed from the rigorous aesthetic practice of the monasteries when it comes to the United States. Um, you know, that's when it starts to, again, as I said, go off the rails a little bit. Um, and again, very American. That's very American to do some cherry picking, to take what you like out of any spiritual tradition and kind of clump it together to make your own. And that's what happened with a lot of the, the Hindu, traditional Hindu practices. People just cherry picked and took what they wanted. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that is always frustrates me. But I think that the I don't necessarily know if blame is the right word because it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just part of like a, an ongoing conversation. But I don't necessarily think that that's all the fault or the generated by the audience. I think that in the next question I wanted to ask you is kind of this idea about um, food as a Trojan horse or this idea of Buddhist idea of skillful means, which essentially just means marketing. It's like you want to give people a little bit to bring them in. And I was, th what I was thinking of is when you were saying that is how frequently food is that enticement to join the group or 
one practice is taken and taken out of context, like you're saying, and said, here, here's like a nice breathing technique that will make you feel good. And then you kind of have your easy win and then you join the group and then the rest is you're off to the races to, uh, the inferno. But, um, I wanted to ask you about, so I think that kind of the, the, the severing and packaging is probably part of the marketing wing of some of these groups and then is being readily consumed and then mixed and matched by the audience. Um, so. There's a tradition in a lot of the Hindu um, spirituality um, traditions of a free meal, of feeding people. Um, it's considered um, a part of the blessing to share the blessing. And so, you know, from the traditional, so this idea of feeding people. Okay, so we've got that. Um, and again, when it comes to the United States, um, most famously, the Hare Krishna groups with Bhaparada, um, it takes that and they create because of how Hare Krishna is about Krishna veneration. Krishna is a hungry little boy with a sweet tooth. And so in the Hare tradition is what you do is you you cook, you you cook and, and you cook in a very um spiritually clean state um, and you cook the food for Krishna. And if he accepts it, then everybody else can eat. And that, that food is now um, spiritually imbued and blessed by Krishna and more so to bless it is to share it with people. And that's where you go. Okay. So now we know that's kind of how that idea originates, but as you said, it becomes a great recruitment tool, especially, um, you know, Brapurada comes in at about 1950s and, you know, you start to the beatnik era, start early kind of proto hippies. People are hungry and what a great way. Invite everybody for a free meal. And then you can talk about, you know, how great this like system of living is right. for people. You got to hear yeah. the You got to hear the lecture while you're eating. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I like that, too, is, you know, again, small tangent is that if you look at like the 19 late 70s, 80s, New York hardcore um, music mm -hmm. scene. Um, a lot of the guys were homeless or squatting and they were near the, the New York temple and would just go and eat at the temple. Oh, and that's you, right. I heard about that. I forgot about that. I, like a lot of those guys from that scene became uh, Hare Christians. I think a lot became Orthodox Christians also under Father Seraphim Rose in, in LA. But yeah, that, that, that I thought was, there was like a real pipeline from hardcore to kind of hardcore spirituality, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And it and what's funny is sometimes there are folks who did actually join up um, and other folks, if you talk to them, I, I always find it amusing when people use like the jargon of a group and they don't realize it because they've just been around it so much. It's so just inculcated in them. Uh, and so I've heard it's talking to some of the New York hardcore guys. They use a couple of the, the Hari phrases and they don't even realize it. <laughs> like like what, what do they use? Um, I've heard like, uh, the very, it's a very common Hari thing to talk about. Um, um, oh yeah, it'll be over in seven years. Everything is in the life cycle of seven years. Like, okay. So it's like, uh -huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. His history definitely, um, <laughs> validates yeah. that. Um, and so, and again, the recruitment comes to is, um, I'm thinking, you know, we talk about recruitment. Um, it goes back to the 1800s. We talk about the Oneida, um, the Oneida were kind of a socialist um, kind of a commune. The The religious aspect all gets overlooked a lot of time, but they were considered uh, pretty out there because they were considered perfectionists, meaning the idea behind perfectionism, which is so antithetical to what we think of as modern American Christianity, which is that Jesus died for your sins. He perfected everybody. So game over. 
we don't have to really do or worry about anything. Just live right. And don't worry about it because he did everything. We're perfect. They didn't, they didn't have to like confess uh, sins no. or at nope. least accept him as their savior or something like no, that. No, nothing like usually that. Usually you at least have to just say you like Jesus and then you're good. Yeah. But, these guys didn't. They were like, no, no, we're perfect. We're perfect pretty, as we are. That's, um, that's pretty funny. That's I might join that one. It's just like, <laughs> it's just the lazy man's religion. It's like, okay, great. I have more time for everything else. <laughs> yeah. They were very industrious because of that. And when you see Oneida silver, lots of food, invented that's a couple really of That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And so again, this food so is few people, so people, few people live, even if it's not religious, so few people live like that. Everyone is always freaking out and acting like it's the end of the world all the time. And it's like, oh, Trump and global warming. If you don't do everything, we're going to die in seven years and all that stuff. So this is secular thinking too. And I feel like I have met maybe like less, I'll just put it this way, less than five people in my entire life who live like that, that like everything's fine. And it's probably like closer to like one or two. And, um, usually there's like a, there may be a religious justification for that, but, uh, nobody lives like that. And I feel like people probably be a lot happier if they were just like, you know what? Like, cause like, honestly, at this point, it's like, look, if a meteor falls out of the sky, okay, great. I'll deal with that. I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. But like it, as a, as a practical thing, it's probably better just to be like, you know what? Like things are pretty good. They are. And something I I say to to friends and I've I've said to to people when they start to get a little excited about like Trump this or that thing or that and whatever, especially in the context of looking at this, especially this type of history is here's my firm. I will stand behind this statement. The United States as a country from its inception is a chaos machine. It was designed to be a chaos machine and it excels at creating chaos within the chaos. We get, you know, ways of existing that overall are relatively benign for most Americans. Um, and again, that doesn't absolve some of the terrible things that our government has done. But as a rule, being a chaos machine means that you're never going to get to any really extreme. You're just staying in chaos. That is our stasis mm. point. Um, but hmm. so few people have such a narrow understanding of American history, of their own time and place in history. Everyone thinks that their period of existence is the most peaceful and calm, except when it isn't. And no, it's yeah. always crazy. This is what we yeah. do. Chaos is our brand. And I think and that, and that that's a grave mistake uh, that people lose sight of. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. I haven't thought about it that way before, but I, that seems to be true. And, you know, it's like we, we're on not four, but two year election cycles that just cause utter chaos. So the idea that the idea that like anything is going to stabilize in one direction or the other just seems not true, which is kind of exciting. I guess it's like an interesting experiment. But you saw that even with Trump. It's like you get somebody that to all intents and purposes looks like the new Mussolini or whatever. He gets in office and he just gets chewed up the same way that every other president did. And he did everything he could. He tried to steal the election and all this. But it's like he too is just getting eaten by the chaos machine. Right. You know, now he's getting indicted, all this. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's I, I see like you know, I guess where in other countries you can theoretically be the king and things like this. This it's like here. It's, I feel like the the seat, the head, the executive seat of power is more like one of those like coin operated bucking bronco things at a bar where it's like, yeah, like if you win the election, you get to try and hold on to that thing for four to eight years. But good luck with that because you're going to just be, you know, 
Right. You're going to have, you have you a make, lot more gray hair on the other side. That's it. That's my point is if you make it, you make it through the eight year ride, right? You you end up aged 20 years with gray hair brutal, and, and yeah. you know, a heart you saw, attack. You saw Obama after the presidency. Yeah. It's just like... It's just, so <laughs> it, it, it's always the old... Um, people, people are, are fascinating and they're ego driven and, and often unaware of their place in the world and, and what that affects. And so we often ascribe a lot more power to people than they actually have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they become symbols as well. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's like when the whole thing about Trump, not again, not to get on tangent, but it's just like, you know, I was so, was so angry for the first two weeks of that. And then at the end I was like, you know what, like, I was burnt out. I couldn't be angry and fight people anymore, uh, fight people online anymore. I was just like, you know what? It's like the world has suffered thousands, if not more, of Donald Trump's. And it will suffer a thousand, if not more, in the future. If you look back at not even any considered bad ruler prior to like 1950, but like basically any ruler, like they're all brutal, sadistic uh, sons of bitches, you know? And it's like, or or, uh, daughters of, you know? And it's like, that's just kind of the nature of the beast. And it shows it kind of, it's an interesting benchmark because it does show how far we've come that our threshold for what we won't accept is so much higher than it was in the, in the past. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. I mean, we should be constantly demanding a higher quality of things. Absolutely. We should. And I, and within that milieu is the, the only thing, and I won't say I fear it, um, but I would like more people to become aware of it is that pervasive influence and power at this point of re- religion, you know, in general, but specifically some of these Protestant sects are, yeah. are a little out of control at the moment. So they, oh, yeah. They need to get like a, the kind of the boop, the boop snoot. They need to get the whack on the nose. They're they're a little oh, getting over their skis. So Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that that is it's interesting. I was reading this Christopher Hitchens book in the morning and there's a line in there. He quotes from I forget who he quotes from somebody else saying it's like essentially that, you know, cr- criticism of, of religion is the root of all criticism. It's like that's the thing. And um, when you have adults with the technological capability that we have, the destructive capability, not to, you know, not just nuclear weapons, but bio nano warfare, all this stuff. And in their minds, they're telling themselves something from a book for a four-year-old. It's terrible. I mean, what, how, how much scarier does it get, you know? And the book is telling them, yeah, there's not only do you run the world, but there's going to be a like Holocaust at the end of this story. And it's you versus everyone else. And they're all going to hell and you're being saved just because you believe in magic sky, sky daddy or whatever. So, uh, and and that's, that's a real thing. And so it's kind of like the whole point of my career is I've been like, look, you need to look at these religions because they're the code that these political, they're up, they're upstream from politics. These are the scripts that these are the game. Religions are the role-playing games that people are out in public making policy, trying to play. And uh, so the code that they're following matters it's not just like a it's not just like a clothing they're wearing it's core to who they are and why they behave the way they do and i think you can't get much clearer than roe v wade being thrown out i mean because the guy that is largely responsible for that is leo leonards who's an operative mm-hmm. jesuit operative for the vatican that got all these people into power so it's like this is pretty real there is a war for uh reality and souls or whatever it is that they think it's just that they are not the ones who should win it Right. And that when you're talking, you were saying, oh, what's changed? Like, where are we in the 20th century? And that would be the big change is um, previously, especially Protestantism, 
itself was very much a separatist groups. They were always were separatists. They come to the United States, things start to like mellow out, become more mainstream. Um, and up until like the mid seventies, it was considered that, you know, don't, you, you know, vote your conscience, but we're not, and it's still, it's still illegal to talk about in church and to politics, but they do it all the time. Um, but it was considered to be antithetical to the, the church belief um, to get involved in politics and a real way. Um, and that changed with um, the moral majority and some of those consortiums uh, in, the, in the 70s that really looked to say, uh, wait a second, we're going to take a different strategy. Um, Coke um, goes back to that because they've been working to turn over Brown versus education since 1956 and essentially co-opted as a political arm a lot of these fundamentalist Christian groups um, to become more politically active to essentially, you know, go back to this essentially a pre-confederacy. They would want, the, you know, this whole state's rights is the idea about feudalism. It's really what they want they meaning you know oh, yeah. with a lot of money and religion i think and here's my one prediction is as the the course of time is that i think these religionists will be severely disappointed because um the the power brokers will cut them out as soon as they get what they want what do, what do you mean by that? Well, so again, a lot of these religious groups, um, especially I'm thinking specifically Assemblies of God, which are growing exponentially. Um, they're doing a lot of recruitment. They're very politically active. Um, but yet what they're looking for is fairly nondescript. They're very much acting at the behest of whatever very right wing movement is happening politically. Um but I think that it's my opinion that when that right wing, the political aspect of it, when they get what they want to some manner of degree, they will abandon the religious followers as soon as they can, because it's oh, just yeah. a means to an end. I, I, yeah, I can see that. I think that and this is kind of like the story of the Republican Party in America is just like, you know, kind of we saw this with Trump, just like promising the world and then. You know, it's just, it's just this utter cynicism. I mean, I think in the 80s, they figured out that they could use religion and abortion as hot button issues to um, motivate the, their evangelical voting base. And then mm -hmm. and then in the last 10 years, it, then it became immigration, which is what Trump figured out. And I don't. Yeah, it's like it's a very cynical ploy. It's interesting. Um, well, I, you know, this has been on my mind for probably 20 years. And, and I when I was doing research for my John D book, what I realizes like the other aspect of that though is there's a lot of evangelicals in power to the point that as people it seems to be that as people get closer and closer to the actual lever levers of power in the u.s government um those are evangelicals uh and a lot of people who are not evangelicals just end up converting to this kind of this kind of like apocalyptic evangelical thing uh just to get closer to to the levers of power and then right. now we're talking about uh you know the the uh apac and things like this and sending nuclear weapons and uh, to israel and, and it's just like they really it's like this whole left behind thing where they really believe there's going to be this thermonuclear showdown out of like some terrible 80s christian lit book um yeah and i i yeah. promise any any evangelical christian who may be listening right now um yeah, the United States is not going to blow up Israel for you. They're not going to do it. They're not going to do that. I don't know. You never, I never say never. You know. Never yeah. say never. It depends on who they get into office. Reagan got pretty damn close. Nah. 
And he I, believed it. So did George W. Bush. They believed it. Capital B believed it. Right. They believed it. But but that is the power of the chaos machine in the United States is a uh, you can have a number of people believe things, but there's still enough diversified power structures that it's very, very difficult to get everybody to to go along with a super bad idea. And that's where you get rogue elements trying to execute a bad idea. Um, but you, it's, it's very difficult to get everybody to go along with it. Yeah, although... I'm not necessarily sure if I call the evangelicals a rogue element because they're pretty damn entrenched at this point. And um, they it's interesting also looking back at kind of like the the history of counterculture and the uh, culture that, you know, we and probably everyone who listens to the show has been involved in. It's like in the 80s, in the 90s, it was so clear that the enemy was the evangelicals and the moral majority and, and, thing, and the satanic panic and things like that, which mm -hmm. comes up all the time on this show. Um, and then that was less clear during the kind of Obama years, uh, where, or it's actually less clear during, well, it was clear during the Bush years because of the religious overtones of the invasion of Iraq and Donald Rumsfeld and things like that. But, um, I feel at least personally, I kind of lost sight of it during the Obama years. Cause it's like, Oh, look, we have an intelligent, enlightened, rational president. Maybe we'll actually catch up with the rest of the world now. And then it was like one step forward, two steps back. Yeah. And so I don't know if up till the point, I know just the demographic stats on churches is they are all dying except for the Catholic church, which is growing in Africa and Mexico. So it may just be a waiting game. Um, the, the other one, again, I'll go back to the assemblies of God. They're the ones they are growing um, exponentially. Oh, in the, is this in the storefront, the storefront ones? Um, no, usually the assemblies of God are usually, those are the mega churches. They always oh, like to, to okay. claim that they're non-denominational. It's it's all rooted in the Assemblies of God movement, which is a, a racist movement from its founding. I don't know anything about this. So please, please uh, so, enlighten uh, okay. me. OK, so this is, a, you know, again, it goes I go into it a little bit because I think it's important. To, again, these lineages, um, people may be familiar with what's called the Azusa Revival, which happened in Los Angeles. That is the idea of, you know, speaking directly to God, again, taking a couple of, you know, random Bible verses, speaking in tongues, the whole jerks and passing out. The So that is part of the manifestation manifestation of Pentecostalism as, you know, a belief. It starts spreading through other preachers that come to visit Los Angeles. They think it's a great idea. Um, Charles Parham starts with, you know, organizing it. Do you see the Church of God in Christ? And then um, it was a totally um, desegregated movement. 1910s, early 20s, a lot of these new religious movements were vehemently anti-racist as well as desegregated. Um, a group of very racist Texas um, men who were Pentecostal and did not want to be under a black bishop um, purposely had a, a big meeting in Dallas um, and formed the Assembly of God. And in the earliest charters, they actually exclude black people altogether from being a part of it in any way, shape or form. And so the roots of the Assembly of God are, are again, in Jim Crow. It's, it's all based on that. So those groups are growing exponentially. And as mm. well as the recruiting, which I think is fascinating and I don't think mainstream media is paying enough attention to, is how much these um, evangelical Protestant Assembly of God type non-denominational groups are peeling off um, Hispanic believers from the Catholic Church. 
um, the largest segment of growing both in the United States, in Mexico, in Brazil, um, is Assembly of God. And they are growing like crazy. Huh. That's really interesting. I, I know that um, the one thing I had heard, at least in L.A., the Pentecostal movement is going through the roof. I mean, that is like the one thing that's taking off. And that's like kind of like you're you see the storefronts where there's just seats and a guy with a microphone. It just looks the size of like a, I don't know, a yeah. T-Mobile store or something like that. And everyone's wiling out in there uh, in this like could be I've seen them in malls and things like that. Yeah. And uh, you see them all over L.A. Um, is that the same thing? It is, is the that, same thing. Yeah. It is. So, so it, yeah. Okay. They're all rooted because part of the assemblies of God, they're all loose affiliations. And this is where these, they're, the direct lineages get really messy. There's lots of crossover between that guy, this guy, this group, and then he's going to take it. He apprentices essentially under one preacher and then he splits off and does his own thing. So there's a lot of that, almost like um, the multi-level marketing scheme aspect of it. Um, in in these kind of storefront churches, in yeah. the Assembly of God's, in these Pentecostal movements. Multi-level marketing, I think, is the true religion of America. I had a friend who said that America itself is an MLM scam, which I, I think is pretty on point. It, it is. I was just um, pontificating to my husband the other day about the only thing that America produces is profit. That's our only, actually, commodity is profit. And so to think otherwise is to fool yourself. Or profits. Um, yes. Interesting. I wanted to ask you on a totally different tack about uh, Germans. So yeah. one thing that I found out about recently is how how the health food movement, as we currently understand it, kind of originated in Germany at the first part of the late 19th, early 20th century, where like what we now think of as hippies, that was from Germany early on. And they kind of came over and started, I believe the first health food store in the US was in Santa, Mon uh, Santa Barbara, started by German immigrants in like the 20s or something like the that. Richters, were, yeah, the Eutrophon, okay. which is kind of like a, you know, kind of a phonetic Greek word for, you know, good health. And that's how that started. Um, so you're talking about, and your history is spot on, is the nature mention, the nature men. And so as it was a, in the late 1800s, early 1900s in Germany as essentially as an antidote to this industrialization and the growth of cities in Germany, there was a movement to go back to nature. Um, and while people may not be able to go totally remove themselves from society, they could go and um, go to a park with a group of like-minded people and play games while you're naked and, you know, take the sun um, and eating healthy. So this was an early identification and realization that modern living is killing us. Um, and so that's where that started. It took an, a different, many different paths ways. And one important one to point out is that what we understand as medicine was really quite new um, as a science informed study. And so we get naturopaths and this idea of naturalistic medicines, plant-based medicines, as well as um, Rudolf Steiner, his ideas on biodynamic farming. These are all different um, little like pockets that were part of that nature mentioned movement. Um, and, and again, I love the strange convergences and why everybody came to the United States, why they wanted to come to California was because of the German novelist, Carl May. Carl uh, hmm. May, who wrote Cowboy and Indian Stories, uh, Winnetou was his, his character. Um, those are still popular to this day in Germany. They sell billions, billions of copies. And so for a German, the 
and especially in your 1920s, your most ideal uh, version of the United States is this romantic Wild West version of Indians living on the land and living free and pure. And if that's what you want for yourself, you're going to come to California and try to attempt that. And that's what Willem Pester did. And there's a really the, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no. So he was one of the first of the German nature men that came over to essentially live in one of the like Palm Desert canyons as a, as a hermit. It's super cool. There's a lot of like dark points to make on that. that I'm just thinking about, which is one is that in, from what I understand, Carl May was also one of Hitler's favorite writers. Like he would yes. consistently, that's all he, it's either that or him and Zane Gray, but he would constantly read Carl May. And there's a point to be made there or a thesis to be made there potentially connecting that with uh, his military policy, because a, a lot of what is now known as uh, whatever that what was going on is that the Nazi party wanted to take everything America had done to the frontier and do it to Eastern Europe to get their living space. And he saw it as this romantic. He wanted Germans to be like cow, Texas cowboys living on the land, farming their own, you know, living space plots and things like that. And uh, yeah, the Lebensraum. Yeah. The yeah. idea that we needed, they needed living room. And that comes out of that same, the nature men, because as an industrialized country, especially if you think about the industrialized Ruhr Valley and Rhine Valley, and you know, it, it was getting pretty gross. This is all coal fired. These are filthy, yeah. dirty cities. And so, yeah, wanting to have more room to expand. And again, you're absolutely correct. The, Hitler was following the American model down to, you know, concentration camps yeah. to forced relocation to eugenics all the a eugenic lot, stuff lot, came from us it came from a lot of it came from california yeah which is uh for instance the eugenics and sterilization programs and things like that and and even back though is it so it comes to ideas about our chaos machine here is that it was considered good science in the you know 1800s to think about like um, genetics for plants, right? We're crossbreeding plants. We want strong plants. We want strong animals. Well, we want strong people. And yeah. it was used to be called strip culture. The idea of, you know, well, I pick that man and pick that woman and they're going to get a good kid that's going to be a good, smart worker. That was considered really, you know, good science of that time. And that comes through uh, famously, you hear like Margaret Sanger with mm -hmm. um, the idea of like Planned Parenthood and birth control. Those are all things that were tangential to the eugenic movement. Now, again, it, it, we're not very good at nuance in the United States. And so some of the things that grew out of that, like Planned Parenthood, which can be a force for good in women's rights, did come out of a dark place. But you can't throw away some of the good things that came out of dark origins. Yeah. And also, I think it's important. I agree with you. And I think it's also important because people do this all the time that once something has been co-opted, it also should not be thrown away. And so the perfect example is the German nature movements, because a lot of that was co-opted by the Nazi party. You know, there were the Wander, Wandervogel, which was like the kids out in nature, and that was turned into the Hitler youth. And, and a lot of what happened was, you know, whether it was that or the runes and things like that, the stuff that the German public was already fascinated with was hijacked to, to push the energy into worshiping a supreme leader yeah. uh, or, or the party. And, and so but and that, that doesn't mean that those were bad ideas. They were like fundamentally, a lot of them are good ideas, especially we think about like macrobiotics, which is the food way from the nature mentioned. So macrobiotics um, kind of 
when is from Germany essentially, but it took a detour through J Japan and France. Oh, I didn't. I thought it was a Japanese. That's I didn't know that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But no, um, Oshawa took the the name actually macrobiotics from um, a German naturopath doctor, and because he that's what he was studying. And so macrobiotics itself is a combination of nature mention, the nature movement, um, as well as then some of the Japanese food ways and vegetarian Japanese food ways, a little seafood. Um, and then it comes through France and then it comes to the United States and then you get Erewhon. Interesting. Uh, Erewhon, the health food chain? Erewhon, uh, the health food chain. That okay. is directly was founded by two Japanese American immigrants who were followers of the macrobiotic movement um, in Boston, the Kushis. And they moved from Boston to Los Angeles, opened up their grocery store. And uh, now it's the hottest pickup joint this side of the Mississippi or what Very any nice. side of the Mississippi. So, only, I, I only went yeah. to the one in LA once. It was really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and of course the Cushies no longer were involved and it got separated from macrobiotic movement. But again, this is to me, the fascinating part of all of this history is that nothing it comes from nothing. All of these things, these choices we make, the food we eat, the things we believe, our politics, it all comes from someplace. And a lot of that someplace with food is religion. Yeah. And um, I couldn't agree more. And in, in, in this is kind of the point that I've been trying to make with my entire career, which is like, you got to go back to the source code for these things. If you really understand, if you want to understand, let me put it this way. If you want to understand people's behavior, don't you think that you might want to at least consider what it is that they believe? Right. Absolutely. So, and I'm always then the why. Why do you believe that? Why are people doing these things and believing these things? And so I'm, you know, I think we mentioned I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, we're very German, very Catholic in, from our history. And if you think about Catholics, um, there was the food prohibition during the Lenten season and it was a um, no meat during Lent. Then that got watered down to uh, no you know, just on certain days, on holy days. Um, but previously it was, you could only eat fish on Fridays during, that was year round. Um, it was a no meat on Fridays. Uh, but now we have a whole cuisine, the fish fry. <laughs> it's, it's Milwaukee, Cleveland, and Buffalo. Hmm. You can go anywhere on a Friday night from a tavern to a church and you can get yourself a fish fry. That sounds um, good. It is good. And it's, you know, and people don't understand that this very common food tradition um, is rooted in the Catholic church and the Catholic belief systems. Hmm. So interesting. Yeah. And again, all of these things come from someplace and have, you know, most people, if you're, especially if you're Protestant, wouldn't think that you're um, taking part in Catholic rituals, but if you're eating fish on Friday, you are sure as hell taking part in a Catholic ritual. Interesting. Interesting. So I want to ask you this uh, slightly devil's advocate question, which is that because um, this is something that I've been thinking about recently. And it's there's all if we look at these movements, whether they're I'm thinking specifically, you said just a few uh, just shortly ago um, that people believe this German movement believed that the modern living was killing us. Right. That's an extremely popular idea. Uh, in the in the I mean, it's widely accepted as true in the 20th and then 21st centuries. Um, but it clearly didn't come out of nowhere. Um, and so my question is whether it's these kind of uh, new religious groups or fad diets or, you know, things like the occult counterculture beliefs or even like being in opposition to GMOs and things like that. 
a lot of people um, have made the point, and I find it hard to argue with this, that a lot of times what the, the, the reason these things exist is that it's a protest of, of um, capitalism. It's like, or a better way to put it is, you know, the system, or rather the growth of all these alternative belief systems is a coefficient with capitalism, meaning the more alienated people are, the less power they have, the more like factory people they're living, the more they're going to look for a pressure release. And that might be an occult belief system. It might be a fad diet. It might be any of these things. So then the question there is like, how much of this behavior is rationally motivated because there, people are actually looking for something that is um, in the objective scientific scheme of things going to make their life better. And how much of it is simply just a protest of, um, the conditions of, you know, the conditions that they're living in that is perhaps less sophisticated than, you know, taking like a class analysis or something more productive. So I think it, to go back to like, we think about, um, er earlier times, the, act of going against an established state religion is transgressive. And so anytime you're going against a mainstream belief, religious belief, cultural belief, food system belief, is it's a transgressive act. It's a transgressive act of autonomy as you're making a choice. And I think in, in, in to what you're saying is there are a small percentage of people who will look either either for um, that transgressive outlet. And I think I, right away, as you were saying, I was thinking of like um, not the church of Satan, but the satanic temple, mm -hmm. which is a much more, you know, a tra transgressive political, you know, entity. a lot more effective or, yeah. or, you know, or the Pastafarians, which is a ridiculous um, kind of church using American laws to form a new religious movement as a form of just protest against the idiocy of American religion. So People will do things um, like that because I think it 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 does come from a sense of internal conflict with the mainstream. Either they don't feel like they're a part of that mainstream, nor do they, or they choose to reject that mainstream, and so they look for outlets. And 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 that, as you said, it's anything that is counterculture. Some people find it you know, through punk rock. Uh, some people find it through through uh, a God of their own creation. Um, you know, so there's so many different methodologies, but very rarely. And I think in um, growing up in the seventies, very rarely is it because, uh, you know, does someone go to find one of these new religious movements or um, an anti-mainstream um, health or food system? Um, they're not lured into it for the most part. The whole myth of like the Hare Krishna's kidnapping your your kid off the street corner, which was very popular in the seventies, right. that doesn't happen. Right. It's a for a lot of the the spiritual aspect of it. It's people seeking. They either, especially, grew up in a super repressive household or super repressive religious culture, and they're seeking. They're seeing. Some, they're trying to find something else. And um, I'll go out on a limb here and maybe offend people, um, but you know, a lot of Americans just aren't that bright. I mean, we're yeah. we're kind of dumb, and uh, so you can still have a transgressive urge to reject the mainstream, but if you're not that smart, you're probably going to go and follow something really stupid. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate, but it is very fortunate that people have the freedom to do so. Yes. Um, um and that's, yeah. you know, that goes back to part of our chaos machine. So there's something to be said for, I'm going to go back to what you're talking about, like with the food aspect of it, Studies have shown, the science has shown that if you follow a Seventh-day Adventist diet, 
you are among the healthiest people in the world. They have done studies of SDA strongholds of people um, in, in Loma Linda, especially, and it's incredible lifespans by a decade longer um, and almost absence of diabetes and uh, heart disease. They are the healthiest people because of the diet they follow. So again, what is their? I don't even know what their, what's the diet. I don't even know what it is. It's highly vegetarian and nearly vegan. I mean, in a nutshell. Okay. Yeah. I know there's a ton of science on, uh, uh, there's a guy named Dean Ornish who's fairly well known. He 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 did a book called Undo It, which I read, which is just basically a collection of scientific studies saying that veganism will extend your lifespan down to the point where it supposedly extends your telomeres, which are the genetic markers of lifespan. Um, but I don't know. I think that I it, like diet diet fatism. I've noticed is one. It seems to be in America specifically diets. Like, it's amazing to me how fixated people are on food. And I think that diets in America are, on one hand, obscene and hilarious because it's like for all of human history, people's problem has been how to get more food and Americans' problem is how to eat less food. Says a lot. But um, I feel that diet fads are a primary way that people get a sense of agency and control over their life because they don't have any other way to do it that they can see at least. And also, and I hadn't considered this before until you were talking about people identifying as groups. I hadn't thought about that at all, but I think that that's a huge way. Um, you know, America post seventies, America is very much about like consumer tribes. And it's like, you can join the CrossFit tribe, you can join the vegan tribe and you've immediately got a network, uh, potentially. Um, but my you know, kind of, kind of what I'm going to is like, you know, how much of this is just fulfilling, secondary psychological needs and how much is actually of value. Um, and I think some of the value happens by accident. I mean, if we go back to Maslow, you know, the hierarchy of needs. Um, and part of one of those needs is the social, is the community. And um, the modern American life is the breakdown of kind of that sense of small town, of community, of multi-generational family units. Um, as large as the United States is geographically, it's so whereas you may have spent your entire life in your own neighborhood and not not really left. You married your high school sweetheart and that was it was a very narrowly defined life. We, we are way spread out. Our families are much more disconnected and people are missing that element, that social element. And so that tribalism, that inherent um, need to find other people that will um essentially reflect ourselves back to us because that's what it is. Um, we want to find out, you like smoothies? I like kale smoothies. What kind of smoothies do you like? Where do you go to <laughs> yoga? And all of a sudden, we've built some sort of you know artificial social interaction based around what we consume, especially as food. Because And again, it comes down to food is a great trust builder. If you think about um, food safety, just from food safety, that aspect of it is, you know, mm. if, you're, if you prepare mm. food incorrectly, you will make someone very sick. Um, I'm also a canner and if you can something wrong, you can kill them. And so eating, sharing a meal together, eating someone else's food is a supreme act of personal trust. I never thought of that before. That's really, yeah. that's really interesting. And so when oh. we do that, we're talking about like the Hare Krishnas in a communal sense, there's an act of trust and trust building there, which of course then builds social bonds. Yeah, no, it's amazing how simple human beings can be. I mean, it's just like, you know, the way to someone's heart is always through their stomach. Always.
That's why that's why the tagline, my running joke when I started this project, even and I had started this project when Adam, Adam Parfrey was still alive. And that was we, he and I had made the joke. Uh, um, does God have a recipe? That's the tagline <laughs> we use for the book, because it's like, does God have a recipe? Manna from manna from heaven. He just right. drops it on everyone. So I wanted to let's bring it up to the 60s. There's lots to talk about there. Um, the 60s are certainly when people started becoming very aware of kind of health food in general. I mean, I remember even when I was a, there's kind of a straight line from the 60s to, to now. And I remember even growing up in the 80s, there was like one health food store in San Diego that was called Boney's. And it was like back in the day, I'm sure you remember health food stores were like gross. They smelled like petting zoos. It was just like, there. it was not like Whole Foods. It was just like kind of like rows of um, like, what do they call those? Like dispensers of dried grains that you'd never heard of and like sprouts. And it's just like, you go in and you just get like the smell of death from it. And it's just like, so, so unpleasant. Uh, and that's changed a lot. I mean, there's, you know, obviously been a lot of vegan science and so forward on making health food actually taste good, but it used to be uh, um, pretty gray in general. Um, Till so, the, the, but I remember even then, a lot of these health food stores were still connected with cults. I think that one was, and now you know, now it's almost the opposite because now we have Whole Foods, which is run by a right wing maniac, um, and so it's it's like the opposite. But um, talk about the '60s and how this changed then, and what groups were pushing this. So what's um, the entry? I keep going talking about the, the lineages. So when by the time we get to the 60s, um, we've already seen uh, some of the traditional religious movements send their um, missionaries. And these ideas are now in the soup, so to speak. And so post-World War II, there's a whole couple generations that are coming, either um, older groups that are coming back from the war and totally dissatisfied with life in the United States. And then what they call the baby boom generation growing up in kind of a repressive 50s kind of era and then also feeling like the United States as it is, is not how we want it to be. Um, and so there was an embrace then of counterculture, so much so that calling it counterculture is almost a misnomer. It was so pervasive by 65 to, I'm going to 75. That's when the 60s were, 65 to 75. We make a mistake sometimes by not including the early 70s, because that's really mm -hmm. when a lot of things happen. Um, and so it was accepted. And universities uh, don't discount also the power of the GI Bill. The GI Bill was uh, a cultural force for incredible change um, by allowing any of the veterans of um, World War II and Korea to essentially attend college of their choice uh, without having to pay for it because they paid in blood. Um, it was able to expose a lot of uh, people, men especially, to ideas that they may not have been able to encounter in a small town or in a very provincial style education. I'm thinking in the Midwest, you have a lot of state schools that are egg for forward. It's not like Berkeley. Um, so again, in the general mix were a lot of ideas. So we've got all of these groups coming and people have already embraced ideas about yoga and in Buddhism and things like that. And then it's so now it starts to just snowball exponentially. It just starts to grow. Um, and so you get some of the new um, 
kind of ideas about what is going to be the spiritual path forward. A couple of people st- uh, stand out. We talked about Yogi Bhajan for a moment. He's important because he came, he was trying to, to form his own groups in India and got in a lot of trouble because the Americans were coming to India that kind of gets called the hippie trail of following, seeking out spiritual leaders and drugs. Um, and they would visit Yogi Bhajan's ashram. And and it was pretty crazy. He had encounter sessions where people were essentially beating each other to a bloody pulp. And that was part of his, you know, to how to, to get out of your mind. Um, the Indian government, a little bit more repressive than the United States. And they said, you know, that's enough with that. So he came to the U.S. Um, and he started right away as a yoga teacher. Um, and he had a great line that, about food because he and he was a home cook. He enjoyed cooking as a hobby. There was almost zero spiritual connection. And so Yogi Bhajan took traditional Indian food, but severed it from the, any of the spiritual traditions because he just liked to cook. He liked food. And so he started, if you wanted to start as a serious student with Yogi Bhajan, you had to go through the garlic fast and you were required to eat um, a clove of garlic three times a day and nothing else for an entire week. Okay. The only purpose for it was, as Bhajan said, to separate the bogies from the yogis. Okay. And it's just hazing. Right. So would someone follow that ridiculous instruction? If you did, then he'd let you in the group because he knew. Because you were applying you were applying and controllable. Yep. And you were into it and you yeah. would follow. And he built from there. Um, and so. Weren't, weren't there are a bunch of scandals with him later on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because um, so Bajan, of course, as is the tradition in the United States, um, the gurus, the leaders get to a certain point of power and then use that power to be sexually and economically coercive, especially towards women. Um, and, and that's what he did. And so they take, he took a lot of followers and um, on the scale of whether sexual conversion to out and out rape. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And then from, and we get to the 60s. So Bijan's operating. One of his early acolytes we mentioned for was Jim Baker of the source family. And, uh, yeah, Baker was with Bajan for like three years, and then he did the very American thing and said, "Oh fuck it, I can do this better." And that's was it, when he wasn't wasn't that guy the Source Family guy like mobbed up or something prior to doing that? A little, maybe, maybe it's been still unproven. Um, what we do know is he did go to jail for second degree murder. It was an, okay. That, that's pretty extreme. <laughs> yeah, Baker is a fascinating character because of that intersection. So coming out of Yogi Bajan, he also had a lot of interaction with Gypsy Boots, who's a second generation of the German nature mention, as well as Jack Lalane and Alfred Bragg. So he Baker was apprenticing and hanging out with like a core group of the early California food, health food guys, and then married that to um you know, the Yogi Bajan's kind of vague Eastern spirituality and yoga. And um, then before that, he was actually owned a couple of restaurants in LA and kind of, and he's the one that married it all together. And that's where you had the Source Family restaurants. Yeah. What was that? Like the house, that's still there, right? It was like the seventh House of Seventh Ray or something like that. No, it's a different, it was a different place. The House of the Seventh oh, Ray okay. was a different group altogether. Oh, oh okay. A, a small right. little group, which it's a delightful place for brunch. Okay. Um, but yeah, the Source Family, they were actually like in Hollywood. Um, the old restaurant. And so, but it goes to the 60s. So again, we we start to see more of the American-born gurus. And that's the difference then. So is 
that you've got guys coming who were coming out of a Sant Mat guru tradition out of India, and it morphs to the American gurus. And that's what the change in the 60s was. So that goes from big to, again, source family to um, Norman Paulson from on the Buddhist side, where you get Norman Paulson and the Sunburst Farms, Sunburst Bakery. Um, and he kind of mixed it all together. And that was a thing that was happening too, because without the strict uh, monastery style learning that you have in traditional Buddhism and the traditional Hindu practices, um, it was pretty open to any kind of interpretation. And in the sixties, a lot of these guys were just blending it all together. So you get to see these groups that are like, they're a little bit of Hindu, they're a little bit of Buddhism, they're a little bit of this and that, but a lot of them also then incorporate, start incorporating uh, Christian ideologies as well. Yeah, that's, that, that is really interesting in good and bad ways. And I think that like, it's interesting. Um, a good example of how the quote unquote spiritual tradition, spiritual traditions in America are almost completely divorced from their home countries is, um, you know, quote unquote Hindu religions. Cause like you can go to, uh, like a quote unquote, like yoga, big yoga guru event. And it's all going to be like middle-class white people and, you know, women in saris and, you know, like young dudes who are on psychedelics and in bands and stuff like, you know, it's just like, it's just like this, like free for all of like, whatever. And um, then you go to a temple, a Hindu temple that only Indian people go to. And it's like 0% overlap. It's more like um, uh, doing pujas to statues and propitiating uh, gods and things like that, all of which is basically alien to Western. I mean, I personally love it, but it's, it's alien to Western thinking and it's it's like alien to Judeo Judeo Christian thinking because we have the whole like thou shalt not worship graven idols thing. Um so I think there's a a point to be made that like whatever this thing is that's happened in America since the 60s, it's just like this vague new age mishmash of Hinduism and Buddhism and health food and Crowley and like all like all this stuff, yoga, martial arts, all this stuff thrown together. Um I think there's a very strong point to be made there that that is a, 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 a uniquely American thing and that some type of new tradition is being born out of that. But the tradition that's going to be born out of that is not Hinduism or Buddhism or Kabbalah or any of these things that have been pilfered from. And I think that's good in the sense that it's really interesting to see what's going to come out of this. And obviously people need to update old systems because they're not relevant to modern life anymore. Um, but um it's also, it's like you interact with these things and it's like, you're just kind of interacting with people's vague ideas and their egos. So I can go back. You, you're, I think you're spot on because Yogi Bhajan is a, again, a great example of that. So I'm saying Hindu tradition because, you know, it, as we've pointed out, it's not traditional. Um, but he, Bhajan fancied himself some sort of out of the Sikh, Sikh tradition. And so if you were a follower of Bajan, then he would indoctrinate you into the Khalsi, which is the community of Sikh believers. And what's happened in the United States. So there has been an increase in actual immigration from India, from of folks from India who follow mm -hmm. Guru Nanak and the traditional Sikh thing. And they they're encountering Americans who identify themselves as Sikh because of Yogi Bajan. And they're going 
this ain't what we believe. What are yeah. you doing? This is yeah. not us. And so there's a conflict. The same in, and in reverse is if you go to a modern Hare Krishna temple, you're not going to see a lot of white people. It's gone back and peeled back to more. You'll see a lot of folks who are originally from India who immigrated, who, again, are Krishna devotees. And they're they're going to Hare Krishna temple. Interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I've noticed that. I mean, like there's been a tremendous influx of, of um, people from India into the U.S., particularly with H1N, what are those calls? H1NB visas. Uh, I always think H1N1, but I think that's bird flu. Um, whatever those visa, those temporary work visas are called. And um, there's been a tremendous influx because of the, the tech industry. And so um, sometimes like I would go to some of these groups where it's like a guru thing and it'll be like, you know, like half totally conservative, straight laced Indian families for whom this is just part of their culture. And then you've got, you know, hippies and flowing white shit and beads falling out of the, their pockets and things like that. And it's just like, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting cultural exchange. I'm not saying it's bad. In fact, I think that when people are like, get really anal about like, oh, you can't commodify this or that. It's like, well, does that mean I can't I, like, I just can't learn from other cultures now. So I think it's good that people are incorporating these ideas. But I, I guess my point is something new will be born out of it. That is not the old stuff. I agree with you 100%. And that is the genesis throughout. And, and that's what the, my research shows is regardless of the original tradition, once it comes to the United States, it it morphs, it changes because of you know, our multi-ethnic culture, our multi-spirituality, our tax laws, our First Amendment, all of those things go together to essentially make something new. Every time that we encounter a new idea, we change it. It's There is nothing that is 100% static in the United States. Again, we are a chaos machine. Which is, I think, really fascinating and creative and, and so much cool stuff has come out of it. But it's just good to, I guess, contextualize it and be aware of what's happening. And this is something that people in the quote unquote spiritual world never do. It's like you go to these things and it's like, you know, you can go to the actual country where they practice this and see how they do it. Or you can read actual academic books about this that will not give you a bunch of like fanciful nonsense. But people don't want that. They want, I don't know what it is they want. They want, uh, I guess what everyone wants. They want to find a mate. They want to you know, define themselves. I don't know. They want to define you. They want to rebel against their parents, whatever it is. Well, um, I, I think Jason, what they want is they want magic. They want the magic and okay. they don't know, they don't know how to harness their own internal systems. They don't know how to internal, they don't know how to study and, 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 and harness that. And so it, it's an, I think it's an exported thing. They look to be um, transformed and transcended to, you know, if you go to, um, you know, that's the group hypnosis element of going to a large congregation of any type of flavor and the, the shared singing, whether it's sick style curtain or, you know, Christian hymns, there's that shared experience. It becomes uplifting and it becomes psychologically fulfilling. You're getting a lot of endorphins. Your brain is really happy. And so I think it, and that's what they're seeking, that kind of magic that they can't generate for themselves. So when you say magic, you mean kind of the magic of the congregational event rather than 
magic with a K specific. <laughs> like, like, what do you mean by you know, magic? I, I, I said it that way because there, most people are just looking for like magic with a C. Um, but yeah. then there are some that are looking for different shortcuts. And that's, again, a very American thing. Uh, yeah. Looking for a shortcut. They yeah. want the result without doing the work. And that's where the magic with a K comes in. And a lot of the new religious movements, especially and the cults, have that, that have the promise of, and we kind of made jokes about some of the very fundamentalist type of religions of like, yeah, yeah, we're going to blow it all up for you. So you get your result you want um, because that's magic. Um, and so there's other groups they're looking for, you know, the day when, you know, I, I think about um, the Big Rock Candy Mountain. That's a great song because um, it's very dark, actually, because that's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. Of, it's a food fantasy of when you're starving, you want streets paved with meat and, you know, mountains made of candy. How do you make that magic happen? And, you know, from a lot of these new religious movements is you follow, follow the guru and he will feed you. Do you know what the original version of that song was about? Oh, yes. Yeah, it was not food. <laughs> Just leave it at that. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of food metaphors in it. It's, um, but yeah, there's, yeah, it's a dark there's song. A, yeah, there's a bad outcome. Somebody should, yeah, if, if listeners are interested, uh, it's an easy Google food to yeah, go yeah. find, I'll, find I'll the original let, lyrics. I'll let people look that up on their own. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, like when we talk about magic, I mean, I spent my 20s in addition to writing and also copy editing for Feral House for a lot of it. I spent my 20s um, kind of uh, running around joining a lot of these groups. Um, pilfering all of their shit and then jetting. <laughs> I'm very good at that. Uh, and so it looked like I was kind of the spiritual seeker on the cult treadmill. And perhaps at times I was, but there was a broader plan there, which was literally just kind of an information gathering. And uh, I got a lot of good information and a lot of information on what not to do. Let me put it that way, which was even more valuable, I think. Um, so I think it's right that people are seeking magic, but... Um, I guess the question there, there's a couple different angles on that. One is, I think a lot of people seek the magic of, um, disassociation and being able to go live in a fantasy world. And then I think a lot of, in America, so much of this stuff is pitched as like, like particularly now, as we see like psychedelics and, and stuff and meditation are entering the tech world. It's like, it's pitched as like a productivity hack or like a life hack or, you know, America, I think the true religion of America is this kind of like Horatio Alger, you can do it, uh, thing. So uh, this stuff is pitched at like even health food is like, Oh, well, you'll be more effective. You'll be more, uh, you know, you'll be better at work or with your kids. And, and, and all this stuff is pitched from a pragmatic angle. And I'm exactly the same. I pitch this stuff from a pragmatic angle because I think it's a better way to talk about it. It's like either it works or it doesn't. And if it doesn't work, move on to something else because life is short. But um, I don't know exactly where I'm going here with this, just kind of sharing some observations uh, on this topic. But, uh, but I think that, you know, those observations are, again, keenly observed because it is this journey of seeking um, through the food, through the religion. And it comes back to, again, a little bit of Christian text that people co-opt all the time about your body is a temple. And there's other variations on that phraseology from different religious traditions. Christians don't own that one. Your body um, is your body is a satanic temple. <laughs> it, make it any temple you want. Um, and that that idea that we honor God, that we honor some sort of deity by keeping ourselves, our phys our carcass in shape. Um, again, it's a strange notion. Uh, why would 
why would any type of um, entity care? There's billions of us. Um, I don't know if they really care whether I ate oatmeal or, you know, chocolate cake for breakfast. It's going on your permanent record. <laughs> right. And I think, and that's, that's a, a real keen thing to see that people think that way. They often look at these beliefs as like a regulation. And it's the, it goes back to the old question of like, um, how can you be atheist and have any sense of morals, right? Because you need God to have morals. No, you don't. How can um, you be re religious and have morals? You're outsourcing your thinking to someone else who's probably got not got your best interests in mind. Yeah. And that's the outsourcing. So it becomes, it goes back to like, okay, acceptance, seeking. Um, and when you're looking to outsource, I don't want to have to do all that research on food science and read all these policies and read all these studies. So if I just follow what, you know, the guy in the robe tells me to eat, I'm going to be just as healthy as him. That, and again, Americans and shortcuts, we always are looking for the easy way out. Yeah. And there's like, I feel like a lot of times this stuff um, like gurus and robes and hippies and things like that is kind of funny and it, it can be funny to it's, it's cartoony and it's funny to observe, uh, or even to participate in. It's funny, but, um, and I'm not saying this about all, all of these, all of these groups. Cause you know, I've learned a lot from a lot of them, but, um, there is a dark moment though, where it's like, there's kind of that moment between people are, um, following this alternative belief system and they're free to do so. And then there's kind of the moment where it crosses to we're refusing traditional medicine for our kid. Like, uh, what do those people call it? Christian scientists, right? And then the kid yeah. dies of an easily treatable thing. And it's just like, what the hell? You know, so there is, or uh, another example, uh, and I think this one is uh, important now, particularly because this whole like tech world obsession with psychedelics and mindfulness and things like that. Uh, and the I guess maybe because of San Francisco, the openness of, of, um, um, tech people to occult ideas. Um, Steve jobs, you know, very famously got pancreatic cancer, refused to do anything except do a, uh, um, uh, vegan diet and yoga died. No, duh. And then gave everyone at his funeral, a copy of autobiography of a yogi, which I love. It's a great book, but it's like, bro, did you think of going to the doctor? Um, you know, there's a point where it does become, particularly when people are making decisions for kids, there's a point where it becomes more uh, not innocuous, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I think it comes back to um, faulty logical endpoints. So if you're subscribing to a belief that is not 100% rooted in science um, and facts, you're setting yourself up for uh, a critical fail point just like Steve Jobs did. Vegan diets can be great, statistically proven to help reduce cardiac issues, um, keep keep um, your physical, your body weight under control. You know, it, it can be a lot of great health benefits, but it is not going to cure your cancer. Um, and right. that, again, it's a fault. It's a faulty logic, the endpoints. And that goes to the same um, when uh, there's a lot of, like you mentioned the Christian science, uh, the Christian sciences didn't have a lot of food things early on. They did early on. They were very vegetarian, but they dropped that. They mm -hmm. just weren't really interested in that, but they do subscribe the whole body as a temple. So you're, you know, supposed to keep your body very, very healthy. One of the ways to do that is with good nutritious food. And so if you do get sick, 
that is a mark. You didn't do a good job of keeping the that's temple so, clean. That's so cruel. That's such a cruel and obviously mm -hmm. wrong belief. But I can see that. And I think a lot of cultures, um, particularly uh, early on, got this idea that your physical, uh, your your external somehow represented your your internal qualities somehow. Right. And, and, and that, that's, a, you know, that can go really dark places. That can go to like, for instance, like scientific racism and just like awful fucking places. So uh, that's a very thing. People really need to watch that, I think. I, I agree. And that's part of the reason wanting to, to, to do all this research and to write the book and was to try to take all these ideas I had in the research and try to make it makes sense to someone else um, versus having me standing at a bar with somebody. Now, wait a second, wait a second, listen to about the, no. <laughs> so this is my way of telling everybody at the bar that I want you to, to understand that everything is related, that all of these food traditions and choices we have are very much related and also come from some fairly spurious kind of origins. Um, and so every time you buy like Yogi tea, again, that's Yogi Bajan. If you go to, there are more out in California, it's great food, the Loving Hut restaurants. If you hit a mm -hmm. Loving Hut yeah, in yeah, California, yeah. Yeah. fantastic. That's a cult. They're owned by a cult. Oh, I did not know that. Although yeah. it's not surprising. Yeah. Yeah, she's great. She's uh, she's great in the sense that she's pretty benign and fairly entertaining. Um, and she is at the cutting edge of what they're calling cyber cults that have little actual physical presence, but ha uh, conduct things virtually, uh, whether through their website, through YouTube. Um, similar to last year, like Love is One. They kind of made the news because uh, they were based in uh, outside of Denver. I think they were in Boulder. And it was just some woman and she was just kind of out of that. We were kind of talking about the white lady, you know, love is everything. Love is all yeah. um, had, had a couple of people living with her in her house. They would broadcast her love is everything messages on YouTube. She died of natural causes, but the, the group freaked out. They didn't know what to do. So they just kind of wrapped her up and put some crystals on her eyeballs and put her in the bedroom. A couple weeks later. Oh yeah, I'm hearing about this now. <laughs> couple weeks yeah, later, it's just like yeah. uh... <laughs> so yeah. you know, again, faulty logical endpoints is what you get with a lot of these groups. Yeah, and I, I think that, like you know, like obviously, I engage in weird ideas for a living. Um, as I do, do too, as do you. So um, I think that you know, I've I've really had to almost on a daily basis really kind of struggle with these things, and my you know, somebody asked me the other day, like, what would you say if you're talking about magic? What are you going to say if somebody who's just like a hardcore atheist science, scientist is going to call you on that? And I thought about that. And I said, I would concede to them off uh, 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 preemptively. And what I mean by that is I would say, I have no interest whatsoever in pitting these type of ideas, or we'll just say magic as a blanket category uh, against science. They're not the same thing. Um, I think that um, yes, you know, it's like, I am who I am, but you don't need many guys like me, please. We need less guys like me. We need like scientists to be like making clear, rational decisions on things. It's like, you need maybe one, one or two of me just to like keep that flag post up. But, uh, like, you know, we, we, we need, what we need is rationality and science and, and logic and, and, um, data. And, and the fact that we have artificial intelligence now and the ability to analyze huge data sets means that, you know, our, our, what we believe about reality is going to change so radically in the next five to 10 years. And we have to be ready for that and open for it. And also ready to admit that almost everything humanity has thought up till now 
has maybe been wrong. And I, a classic example of that is looking back at, you know, you get like stories from the middle age of the vampires and werewolves and things like that. And it's like, you look at, like, I looked at that when I was younger and I was like, well, what if it's true? Obviously it's not, uh, when I was like a kid. Um, but now it's like, I look at that and I'm like, this is probably the result of, this is probably people who did not have access to books or the internet. Like somebody told the story, somebody else thought it was real and it spiraled out of control. And there's probably a lot of stuff. There's probably a lot of stuff like that, that we as adults operate on, on a daily basis that is spurious. Um, and so like my kind of my take on magic is I, I, it is not, it is not even a non overlapping magisteria with science. It's not in competition with science. Magic is about sub it's it's more like an art project. It's it's about how you subjectively feel. It's about how you steer yourself in life. It's a soft science. It's not even a science. Um, and it's incredibly valuable and incredibly useful for constructing meaning for your life in an existential sense. That's what it's for. It's a tool for constructing meaning for your life. It is not, a, there are no, like you should not make any truth claims at all within that, that uh, whatever you want, you know, that, that idiom. It's like, like, it's just, it's, it's like art. It's much easier to put it side by side with art as part of the inspirational process or something like that. Uh, I don't think that the world is made of like gnomes or something like that. Like, uh, so anyways, uh, and in I, fact, I, and just my final point is to something you were saying earlier, if science was able to explain all of the phenomenon of altered states of consciousness, uh, meditation, yoga, trance states, visions, uh, divine inspiration, messages from God that turn into sacred books. If science was able to be explain away all of that, and I do mean explain away, like there's zero chance for supernatural explanation, I would be happy because I was like, I'd be like, great, now we can systemize it and actually use it and move on. If like, if somebody shows me how they pulled the rabbit out of the hat, my response is not to attack them because they're heretics. It's to want to learn how to do the trick. So anyways. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I agree with you. And it made me think of two two very specific things, which is uh, Swedenborg, of course, Emanuel Swedenborg, the great scientist mystic. Um, and at the, if you read a lot of his theories on surface, it could... It, can come across as fairly like woo. Um, but yeah, he believed in aliens and all kinds of shit. Yeah. But also he also believed in that there was a life force. Um, and he described it in such a way that, you know, it's been proven to be, he was describing atoms essentially, and he was right. He was able to make some advanced metallurgical discoveries based on his understandings of the time. And so it goes to say is that, a long time ago, the ideas of spirituality and magic and science were all intertwined. It was the idea of trying to understand what is our place in the world? What is our meaning? What, what are we doing here? And why are we doing it here? Um, and I think in moving it into the future, there's some fascinating studies happening um, and it, it actually is launched off of the what they call the Good Friday experiments that were done by Ram Das and Timothy Leary at the Harvard Divinity School. Uh, they have using FRI, fMRI machines now proven and shown where um, LSD and the related family of those types of drugs 
can actually create new neural pathways between the DMN and I think it's the CMD, the DMT. Or I'm, I'm getting my terms mixed up, but you, you all know what I'm talking about. So the rational side of your brain to the spiritual side of your brain, the drugs make new pathways. If you take the drugs, they are proving that you make your spiritual side bigger. You're more receptive to those ideas. And uh, conversely, if you're a super, you know, uh, spiritual, it'll help build more pathways to the the sciency part of your brain. And so we're getting closer to these points of proving, disproving, or at least explaining a little bit. So which is not to negate it, but to say, yes, some brains are more in tune with a world um, that is inhabited by spiritual ideas. That is of a state of human existence. And now we're learning how to tweak it. That's fascinating. And it's like, yeah, that's a state of human existence. It always has been. It always will be. And um, I think that that's super interesting. And yeah, kind of the way that I look at it is, um, you know, we used to have astrology, which is just this collection of whatever. And then we got astronomy out of that. We used to have alchemy, which was, again, a collection of perhaps bad hypotheses from which we got alchemy, uh, excuse me, from which we got chemistry, vice versa. And so it's like, Okay, well, you know, if we really put some brain power on the stuff that has been considered, you know, the occult or capital M magic, by which I mean techniques of trans states, tra let's just say, let's just say this, okay, that like you were saying, um, having a, you know, people who have a religious experience, a lot of people will have one at some time in their life, usually it's not that many. Um, and usually they can't explain to usually people have these kind of spontaneous enlightenment or religious experiences, and they may not even be religious. It may be totally out of context. They can't figure out why it happened and they can't repeat it. Um, and a lot, if you look at the history of a lot of people into the subject material or artists like Blake or people like that, who became interested in, in the supernatural, a lot of times they've had one of these experiences and they can't explain it. And then it becomes an obsession. And as we know, sometimes the harder you chase something, the faster it runs away, uh, which is one of life's little ironies. But, um, you know, my, you know, if we were able to put, if we were able to take these things seriously and get a hard science out of it, how awesome would it be if you could take, um, uh, if you could take uh, violent miscreants and turn their God switch on and uh, see maybe their behavior, you know, it's like, there's a lot of, uh, well, there's a lot of science on giving LSD or, or meditation practices to people in prison. And it really it helps uh, it, often. So yeah. Um, I wanted to, to, to tack on to that. I mean, so yes, ethnogenic drugs. So the psychedelic drugs can open up your brain and build new pathways. So does meditation. So again, these are studies, science-based in the fMRI yeah, machine. Hard studies. Actual hard data. studies yeah. that show that the same, you know, the God part of your brain opens up with long-term meditation. And again, we're Americans, so we want the shortcut of just taking a drug. Oh yeah. No, shock your brain with a cattle prod. I mean, like whatever it takes, like they have that yeah. now trans transdermal cranial stimulations actually, actually works. So you just need and a nine volt battery. <laughs> Yeah, and it and it works, and it it's showing great promise again for um, really assisting people who have um, kind of you know unresolved depression issues because of their brain chemistry. I separate that out not during their life circumstances. If you're working a minimum wage job and you're worried about rent and you don't have a car and your kids are hungry, guess yeah. what? 
Yeah, that is not a mental illness. That is a societal failure. And so we've, yeah. we've that's my little rant is we have too many people that are being medicated and being diagnosed with um, so-called diseases when it they're, they're it's just poverty. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I'll, I'll agree completely with that. And I'll add on to that. That happens in the spiritual world, too, where you always get this thing of like, oh, well, you know, if so and so is happening in your life, it's all just your attitude. You know, it's like you need to change your, you need to change what you're focusing on, and it, like it's all this spiritual nonsense. Or like, you know, a classic one is the hostility you get from quote unquote spiritual people to like, for instance, psychiatric medication mm-hmm. or or vaccination. You know, it's just like we don't need to go down that tunnel. But you kind of get what I'm saying, where um, there's not a whole lot of rationality at work there. It's more like a, you know ascribing to cult beliefs that you expect the people around you to ascribe to. And so um, that that's a critical conversation to have on both sides of that spectrum. Like there's just a lot of unaddressed, like it's like neither science, like none of these things are going to fix your medical bills. Like, right. you know, none of these things are going to fix the fact that America, the American medical system is, is fucking is a serial killer. Uh, so it's, it's like, you're going to need. And, and so I think that like, this is a great example of, you know, Crowley was very clear about this. He called this confusing the planes. So you can't use spiritual, you can't use spiritual techniques to change material conditions. Uh, not, not directly. I mean, you can by changing your mentality and then working towards that, but that's going to require real world techniques, whether or not it's spiritually inspired. You know, I wasn't familiar with that Crowley quote. That's actually really a good explainer for a lot of what we're talking about, these modern cults. They're looking to use um, some sort of spirituality, some performative, you know, actions to change the material existence. And in a cult situation where someone, where you join a group and especially, uh, you know, an isolated commune style group, you know, we're going to put clothes on your back. We'll put a roof over your head. We'll feed you. All you have to worry about is whatever, you know, the guru is telling you to, to do. And, you know, if it's digging ditches, you're digging ditches for God, you know? Uh, and so, but that yeah. does not necessarily. Meanwhile, your wife's in the back room with the guru. <laughs> yeah. And, but is that actually improving your material condition? No, it's not. It's improving but, his. <laughs> but you think it is. And that was, that's the great con of, of a lot of these American, um, styled gurus is it, it, there's a con involved. Absolutely. Now, hmm. do they believe their own uh, con? That's you know, maybe some of them do. Some I think of them that's do. the most dangerous when they, because yeah. I think a lot of them, I think a good example is maybe uh, Carlos Castaneda. They yeah. start off um, and other people that I won't mention, but they, they start off um, as outside observers and they have some detachment, academic or journalistic or just the standard detachment. And then then they start getting attention like Carlos Castaneda did for that first Don Juan book. Suddenly they're rock stars. Well, they, they, they must have, something must have worked. They must have happened on something. If all these people think I'm right, I must be right. And I think that's the most dangerous moment when people, I think that in my experience too, it's like cults are dangerous. They're not just dangerous for the followers. They're dangerous for the cult leader, maybe more than them because they've made themselves a target. They've put themselves, they've, they've volunteered to be part of the transference loop. Um, and you know, they're just, they're, they're just, it's a bad things are going to come out of that. So. Yeah. It it comes down to what, what is a cult? It's a high control group. When, um, a leader or, you know, a small junta of, of leaders, sometimes I have lieutenants, the enforcers, um, try to control your physical being, your emotional 
being, your intellectual being, being, um, so so physical, emotional, um, intellectual, and sexual. If there's a group, a small group, or one person trying to control most of those elements of your existence, you are in a cult. That is cultic behavior. And so we tend to lose focus because we um, ascribe cults just to religion and but that control behavior that high cultic behavior it happens across the board in many types of of group situations and it's usually a group it's hard you can't be a cult on your own you could want to be but yeah you need followers to become a to be a cult um and and that's it's a great danger and when i think about you know tony robbins that kind of we talked about multi-level marketing the Mm -hmm. continual the whole self-improvement self-actualization um i know you know our mutual friend um Mitch Horowitz talks really intelligently so much about some of the I am and that early history. And, but I know he also cautions about some of the dangers of being entirely reliant on this idea that you alone can just kind of force your will onto other people and and external things to control an outcome. It's a dangerous path. It's very dangerous. And, you know, my attitude towards this stuff has always been like, you know, I came out of kind of Gen X hacker slacker culture in the, in the nineties. And so my attitude has always been, um, that basically an early internet attitude towards this stuff, um, which is get all the information and put it for free online or, or, or make it free online, make it accessible online and, um, get, or, you know, get the information and distribute it outs without the packaging of the cult thing. And it's like, you know, leak it put it out there. It's like, it's like, we we don't have this need for these control groups anymore. I think that, um, a really useful book for somebody to write would be, um, just a book looking at modern recent cult movements. Cause I was thinking about what you were saying about cyber cults and I hadn't heard that said before, but I think that's a, a critical thing to point out. I did a podcast with a guy named Fer. his YouTube name is Faraday speaks. He's like this 19, 20 year old kid from West Virginia who got uh, sucked into the alt-right and this was almost all, this is early Trump. And this was almost all online. And I made the observation talking with him where it's like, it's not a physical cult. At least he wasn't in a physical cult. It can be, but, um, it's more like a mental tunnel that he got into. And I made the point to him where it's like, you know, in the sixties and seventies and eighties, people were joining physical cults, but it's like, this is even scarier because it follows any time you're near a internet terminal, it follows you. You know, it's just one YouTube click away or something like that. And he was, he at least says claims that he was indoctrinated by the YouTube algorithm that it kept showing him. He started with Joe Rogan and it kept showing him more and more extreme right wing stuff um, until he was like looking at, at Nazi shit and he didn't even realize what was happening, he claims. So mm-hmm. um, thinking about that, or I thought of there was a, there was a cult in San Francisco called allegedly a cult. Cause this is active. I have to be careful. Uh, named less wrong. It's like an AI risk group started by this guy named Elazar Yudkowsky, um, who's an interesting writer, but apparently I've read stuff online from people who are, you know, women who joined it and they're like, yeah, this was a crazy high control cult environment. Um, and they're trying to put their lives together after being involved with it. Allegedly, I'm repeating things I saw online, so I've never interacted with any of these people. Um, but I think that there's like, and then you look at some of the Silicon Valley stuff with psychedelics and mindfulness, and it's like, well, who, who are these groups that are propagating this? I mean, as we all know, cults look for, they don't look for people off the street. They look for people with master's degrees and money. 
And I think that the idea of recruiting, you know, these high level or like Nexium recruiting among or Jeffrey Epstein, you know, they're recruiting at the top of society. So one thing I learned, too, is this idea that it's only unintelligent people that fall for cults. Uh, no, sometimes it can be hyper intelligent, hyper driven, hyper successful people who are just lonely or whatever, you know, like people can be or there's in a bad moment. People can be susceptible. Somebody gets to somebody at the right time and place when they're vulnerable, you know. So uh, I feel like that would be interesting because I think like our idea of cults, I've been realizing this through this conversation, our idea of cults is so much shaped by things like the Hare Krishnas, mm -hmm. but that's not the shape of things now. It's outdated. It's an outdated model. And the model you're talking about, the, the modern way, as I see, is like, again, these cyber cults. And it goes to the, the algorithms do play a role in how they're doing it. Um, it's also the, our just general, I started talking about the, just our lack of, of education and just how dumb people are. I mean, how can you... I'm ashamed to be an American to say that there's what some 19 year old kid in West Virginia who doesn't have a concept of what fascism and the Nazi party was, then yeah, that is did. a failure. That is a he, failure he of our education system. He did. None of the dog whistles registered to him. And, and until that, he says, he says, you know, yeah. so, but yeah. Right. I'm, I'm in Milwaukee. I know. Yeah, we have it here. Um, in, in meaning we were one of the headquarters of the Bund in the 1930s. So yeah. it, it, it it, it was too, apparently. Yeah. So it's a, uh, it's something that here we're very cog uh, cognizant of because you know, it, it's, it's here. Um, and so, but again, the, the, these are the conditions that, and I think that that form that allow people to get kind of, well, I'll use their terms sucked in. The, as you said, that there's a moment of weakness, even if they're, they are uh, fairly intelligent that, that will show them the appeal, the appeal of, of subscribing to these kinds of beliefs. Um, and I think, again, that future danger is and where it really started to to converge is during the pandemic when so many people were um, home, less socialization, yeah. less interaction, um, less diversity of interaction. I mean, just if you're in a city walking around, going to the grocery store, you see a diverse group of people. If you're just in your house waiting for some guy to drop off your groceries, you're not. And that harms our, our psychology. It's how we look at the world. And so, you know, everybody's isolated. They're online. They're not seeing many people. And so I think the, set the conditions to for people to kind of fall into, you know, the more the Nazism aspects of right wing culture, um, the QAnon, but just asinine. Yeah. This, this, just, I know. It's just like, how could you how could anyone believe this? Like anybody. Yet they do. So and my aunt, as I go volunteer at a food pantry, geez, you know, go to the hospital and hold a premature baby for a while. They always need people to hold babies and rock them to sleep. Hmm. You know, if you're feeling so lost in the world, that's your sign to go out into the world not retreat further from it. That's a great point. Say that again, please. Well, um, that if you're feeling a little lost or isolated to go out into the world, that's your sign to go and reenact your relationships and be out into the world and not retreat further from it. That's a beautiful point. I, I really, that's true. I really like it. And it's, it's something I hope I can remember. Um, Maybe that's a good point. We're, we're at the two hour mark. So I had more questions, but maybe that's a good point to uh, put a bookmark in it for now. Sure. Um, so the book comes out on the 26th. 
September 26th. And I'm thrilled to have this conversation with you, Jason, because you and I were able to talk about a lot of the, the spiritual and religious aspects of it. A lot of uh, folks are focusing on the food aspect of it, which is interesting. And again, I wrote it because it was all interesting, but it, it's a pleasure to talk about the, the deep dive into some of the religious history of it. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, this is a super great conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class. And until next time, hang in there.